0: No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: you please um, remain standing as we um, commend this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we each have copies of your word in our homes, and we get to hear it. We know that's not the case all over the world. And Lord, we would ask now by your spirit that you would teach us to hide your word in our hearts. Teach us to long for you more than we long for anything in this life. Lord, we are waiting for you. So Lord, even through this humble time of preaching of your word, teach us to wait expectantly for you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been a few months now, but we have arrived at the last sermon in our sermon series on the book of Revelation. And today we're studying the the final chapter of the Bible, but it's also the final chapter of mankind, of humankind. And uh, chapters 21 and 22 together form the longest description in the Bible of what we call heaven. And as we've said, it's not, heaven isn't just something in outer space where we wear togas and play harps. John calls it a new heavens and a new earth. And so perhaps a better way to describe it is a future world. I like that. And so these two chapters, it's a a description of what things are going to be like, what the situation will be when Jesus returns. Now, we as modern people, we have a complex relationship with heaven of this future world. There's something about our eternality that we both love and it bothers us at the same time. And so there's this intuition in the human heart to actually avoid it and to reason it away. That intuition isn't anything new. For instance, even well before Jesus, almost 300 years, Epicurus taught that when you die, nothing happens. He suggested that there's nothing to be afraid of because it's just nothingness, everlasting nothingness. And our sort of modern philosophies of progress are simply building on that. They suggest that really our real goal is found here in this life. And these philosophies want to convince you that this life, this world as it is, is our home. And they try to persuade us that this earth can be transformed into, uh, into an evolved utopia. But you really don't even have to go to Christian philosophers to see people candidly speaking against that kind of thinking. Uh, if you'll remember from your philosophy 101 You have, on one hand, Martin Heidegger. He was actually like a fascist sympathizer. And then on the other side, you have like Karl Marx. He's a sort of communist socialist. So these are extremely different people, very far apart in their philosophy of the world. And yet, however far apart they were, they were in complete agreement about one thing. They both acknowledged and wrote about a deep sense of psychological alienation that all human beings experience, that we live in a world that can never totally feel like home. For my Christ in the Classics guys, Albert Camus perhaps is the most candid He says that even beauty is unbearable. Even beauty drives us to despair because it gives us a glimpse of eternity that we cannot have, he asks. He says, why do we have this eagerness to live with arms and legs that are destined to rot? We shouldn't. He says this revolt of the body is what is is called nausea. It's just not that easy to agree with Epicurus because eternity is stamped on our hearts. Nausea is this nagging feeling that there is something more. Have you guys have heard, it came out several years ago now, this book called Heaven Is For Real. It's uh, not recommendable or anything like that, but it's, it's about an experience of a little boy who was supposed to have like a near-death experience. He goes to heaven. He comes back, tells his father, probably a pretty good businessman, and he writes this book. And now I, I can't actually speak to the contents of the book. I've never read it. But what interests me is that this is a New York Times number one bestseller. And it was so popular that it's actually turned into a screenplay so that you can actually watch it on a movie. And it generated all kinds of interest. And what it tells me is that even though we live in a culture where people aren't sure what their religious convictions are, they're not even sure if there's a God or not, they're still very much interested in this idea of an afterlife, of a future world. Well, as I said, there's no longer description of this future world than in chapters 21 and 22. And God gives us this vision of the future because it's really easy to get lost in the mundane difficulties of life and to lose sight of where all of history, human history, your history is going and in the middle of these difficulties that we experience in this life, the question we have is, like, how do you keep going? How do you, how do you stay focused? Well, anyone knows that it's much easier to keep going in a challenging situation when you have a certain confidence that the situation is going to change, right? So for the Apostle Paul, uh, John's original listeners, what gave them this new sort of spiritual energy to endure and persevere following Christ in these challenging circumstances. Well, it was a confidence that what they were experiencing would not last forever, that it would be replaced by something else. And listen, family, this is, that is true for us too. And this is where you and I are going to find hope in a battered world. We're getting a peek into where all of history is going. And so we need to think about this and we need to let our imaginations flow freely and joyfully. And so let's do that today. Do y'all know what the the term audiation, I learned this term this week. So audiation is this ability to recall music or sound at such a level as if you were hearing it live. So many of the best musicians are gifted in this way. They actually have an ability to actually hear music in all of its detail when it's not even being played, just in their brains. And you see this, of course, we have a few people here that have this these highly skilled musicians are gonna do this. And they so people they've done studies on this, taken samples of brain waves, and they have found that when musicians use the skill of audiation, the brain waves are as strong as if they're actually sitting in the chair playing the music themselves at the highest level. That's what I want us to do today: to get raptured into the, the beautiful thoughts of the future world, so that you can hear and see its beauty, even though it has not yet come. But maybe our brain waves or our heart waves will be just as strong, if even for a moment. And so to, to contemplate this future world this morning, we're going to look at uh, a few categories that we see in chapter 22. And so for you note takers, we'll have two headings. The first is a restored garden, and then a reversed curse. So restored garden, reverse curse. Let's start with a restored garden. Uh, I've shared this with you before. I come from a home of Mexican immigrants. My family planted roots on the southeast side of Houston. And uh, little Mexican kids did not grow up watching Star Trek. And I just, just need to establish that up front. This just wasn't a conversation in my home. But I did have this friend who's super into it. And so he got me into like Star Trek and Star Wars and like the X-Men Marvel Universe. Uh, So I wasn't like full up into it. I wasn't like Jason Walsh level or anything, but I was like Star Trek or Star Wars adjacent, all right? And uh, you'll remember uh, Star Wars, or excuse me, Star Trek, uh, it started as like a bunch of TV episodes, but they moved into movies. The first movie, the first Star Trek movie is pretty cheesy, but the second one has this interesting plot it's called The Wrath of Khan. So the plot follows this character, Khan, who stole a device called Genesis. Not making this up. So Genesis, this device, began as a sort of humanitarian project that was developed by the Federation. And the idea was that this device could be shot to, into a moon or a, an asteroid or some uninhabitable space rock. And that device could, when it's shot, could uh, could transform uh, or, or it, it could terraform, I think is the language that they use, terraform that the rock and it could become fully habitable, a functioning planet. And so a new world would emerge when this missile type thing exploded. Uh, of course, that same device in the hands of Khan is a dangerous weapon, particularly if it's shot at planets that are already inhabited because it would kill everyone. Uh, Cool plot. You can kind of see how it unravels. But here's why I bring this up. In some sense, our world was spiritually uninhabitable until Christ came. And and with with the explosion of his life, death, resurrection, It began to make a new world. And in fact, we know this, right? The Apostle Paul will say it like this He says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? The old is gone, or the old has passed and the new has come. There's coming a day when the new heaven and the new earth, this future world, completes this sort of spiritual terraforming. And I start this way because I want us to pay attention to how John even speaks about the structures of our new home. Revelation 21 and 22 are a mirror to Genesis 1 and 2. So last two chapters and the first two chapters. If you'll remember, in the very first chapter of the whole Bible in Genesis 1, the description of creation is, is pretty global. Like it's, it's wide lens. You have six days of creation and it describes large bodies of water and large, you know, land masses, entire species of animals. But then what happens after chapter one and chapter two, the description is not considering the whole scope of creation. The focus gets brought down to a garden. This very narrow lens. The Garden of Eden is being prepared for Adam and Eve and for their posterity. So a narrow lens. Now something very similar is happening in chapter 21 and chapter 22 of Revelation. So what we studied last week in chapter 21, we saw the new heavens and the new earth, a new beginning of sorts, a wide lens. And now in our chapter, chapter 22, he zooms in and shows us specifically this new heavenly Jerusalem, this new city. And then he focuses our attention on a garden, the garden of God, a narrow lens. And the reason why I believe he does this is to create this literary chiasmus, this bookends, because the entire expanse of time could be understood as a movement from a garden to a garden and then to another garden. And let me explain. So the Bible begins in the Garden of Eden But then in the middle of history, we see the Garden of Gethsemane. But it also takes us to the garden where Jesus is buried, where the tomb, where he's laid. And do you remember when Mary goes to look for the resurrected Jesus? He appeared to her, but she didn't recognize him. Like, Do you remember who who she mistook mistook him for? She goes, oh, you're the gardener. Y'all remember that? Indeed, he is a gardener but a different kind of gardener. And then in the very final chapter, in chapter 22, human history ends back in a garden in the middle of a city. And now this garden is superior to the first garden of God because there is no possibility of it being lost. See, in Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve were created, they are put in, into what theologians call a probationary garden, They are given a command to keep it and to care for it. And they have rules and obligations that they must keep. Otherwise, they forfeit the garden and they will die. So it's possible for them to lose the garden. In fact, they did. So to Adam and Eve were given an unconfirmed righteousness, an unconfirmed holiness and justice. And their righteousness, holiness, and justice would be confirmed if they kept the commands of God to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and the evil. They failed, right? And they broke God's law. They lost their righteousness, holiness, and justice. But what the apostle John is showing us here in chapter 22 is that in this garden, it has a confirmed holiness, righteousness, and justice. This is the restoration of what has been lost. There are two features that give us evidence of this restored Garden of Eden. He shows us a river and he shows us a tree. First, the river. Look at verse one in your Bibles or in your worship guides. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So this river is an image of the river of life that you see back in Genesis 2. And if you'll remember, that river flowed out of Eden uh, to water the garden. And as we might remember, it was like divided into four different rivers. And that river from Eden sustained life in God's world that he created. But where the river of Eden granted physical life, this river in chapter 22 grants eternal life. And the, the, the apostle John, very, very conspicuously, I know y'all don't read Greek or anything, but he uses the Greek word zoe instead of bios. So bios speaks to biological life. So when it says water of life, it's water of, not bios, but water of zoe, which speaks to life in the fullest sense to include spiritual life. So this river then, you'll notice in your text, flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So this water from this river grants eternal life. But it's really important for you to know that this is not something just brand new in chapter 22. This has already begun with Jesus' first advent, with his life, right? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. To drink, of those, uh, of the, to drink deeply of the of." of Jesus in this life, because he says, I am the water of life. To, to drink from him is to taste that future river in the garden of God. Now look at that second feature in verse 2. Not only do we see a river, but we see a tree. This is starting in verse 2. At the end, through the middle of the street of, street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life of its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So if you'll remember in the Garden of Eden, one of the defining features is that there are two trees, right? One was the tree of life, and the other was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But here in 22, there's only one tree in this garden, and it's the tree of life. And it has 12 kinds of fruit, very important number of completeness, which always produces, and their leaves were for the healing of nations. This tree always heals, never has any negative side effects. Now, listen, when Adam and Eve were in the first garden, they could approach the tree of life any which way until they were exiled. And do y'all remember what happened? Adam and Eve sinned. They were kicked out of the garden. And then God put a sentry, like this, this angelic creature, the sentry at the entry point. And he had this flaming sword. Do you guys remember this? And that flaming sword threatened death to anyone who would try to approach the tree of life. But in this garden, in chapter 22, what happened to that angel? What would happen to the sword? What happened to the other tree? It's no longer in the future Garden of Eden. See, that's part of the story. The one tree has been symbolically used, cut up to make two planks where Jesus himself was stretched upon and killed. And as he hung on that tree, as we sing, the father turns his face away and the very stroke of the flaming sword was applied to Jesus for your sin and for mine. If we had tried to approach the tree of life, the angel would have struck us dead, but instead Jesus dies in our place and therefore the tree of life is open to us forever, eternally. There is no angelic sentry guarding its path. In the new Eden, Jesus has earned for us full rights to the tree of life, righteousness, holiness, justice, permanently confirmed by Jesus himself. And this, brothers and sisters, is the short form of the gospel. Like the gospel is good news even in heaven, in the future world. It's written into the future world's very architecture and design, the life of the restored Garden of Eden is connected to the life that is offered to us all in Christ. Everything you and I will lay our eyes on in the future world will remind us of the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. And so delight, rest, rapturous joy is all connected to what Christ has done. It all flows From his throne and from the Lamb. So we've peeked into the future world. We've seen a restored garden. But there's one more important aspect to it, and this is the reversed curse. This is our second point. Now, this one is compelling, but it's hard to imagine because all of us here are natives to a cursed world. Now, don't get me wrong, we all work really hard to see beauty in this world. But this world is in ruins. We live in a world that could be labeled a glorious ruins. And it's really important, though, however glorious it is, to understand how dark this world can be. Don't turn a blind eye to it. And I don't know if this sounds obvious, but in our modern society, instead of calling things sin or, or being allowed to make moral judgments, we tend to describe sinful individual church choices in terms of how society has corrupted or, or misnurtured humans. That, that humans are basically good, but really we're just victims to economic forces that turn people into selfish entities. But that description does not account for the curse that has spiritually put all of us, the nicest of us, even Mother Teresa herself, at enmity, at war with God. In the words of uh, the Avett brothers in their song, January Wedding, he sings, I hope that it does not sound insane when I say there is darkness all around us. I hope that it doesn't sound insane when I say it. You can hear his reluctance to just say it, that there is darkness all around us. Until you come to grips with this it's hard to see just how spectacularly different the future world will be. Look at verse three. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. What brings tears and mourning and crying and pain to this world will be gone. The curse that has been laid upon this world is Finally, over. Y'all know what I'm referencing, right? The curse. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve betrayed God, we see God say, "Cursed, be the ground because of you." So Adam is like that, is the representative head of humanity, of the whole world, and because of his sin and Eve's sin, they plunged, not just themselves. Not just their posterity, but the very world, the creation itself is plunged into rebellion and decay and corruption. It was a curse that was brought on by the rebellion. All creation now is held hostage by our sin. And that curse in the future world is broken. And you and I literally have no categories to understand what this could mean. Like when my daughter and I made it to the very top of Mount Bierstadt, we looked at the view, like the mountain passes, like you could see clouds below us, the snow-capped peaks even in June. And it just seems to us perfect. It feels uncorrupted by humanity. But even that view is laced and touched by the curse such that the same view in the new future world will have an even more intense, perfect glory in ways that our brains have no categories for. And just as we sing that Christmas hymn, which we will sing here, Joy to the World, the third verse. Y'all remember what we sing in the third verse? How we, what we say? We say that he, Jesus, he comes to make his blessings flow Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, his blessings will flow. Even the undisturbed peaks of the most gorgeous 14ers, even those will have a deeper glory. And not only will the created order have blessed redemption, and as glorious as that is, the main benefit, according to our text, is that we will see God and worship Look at the end of verse three and four. His servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So if you remember Adam and Eve, before the fall, they would walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. God was not just this disembodied spirit floating around, right? He took on human form and he walked with Adam and Eve and they saw him face to face. But since they were banished from the garden, no human has been able to look at God in the face and live. Do you remember like how Moses just longed to see the face of God? God, But God knew that his holy pr- presence would incinerate even the holiest of human beings. And so God put Moses when he asked, he put him in the cleft of the rock and he said, listen, I'll cover you up and then my, glo- my glory will pass before you. You can see the train. You can see my back, the backside of my glory because no man can see my face and live. And I know that Jesus was among mankind and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld its glory. And yet, very few even recognized him or knew him for who he was as god incarnate but one day when the curse no longer corrupts our vision we will see him face to face and his presence will neither be scary nor difficult to distinguish and we will worship him and his name will be on our foreheads and the brokenness that muddy up our relationship with god will dissipate and our fellowship And friendship will be restored with perfect communion. If you'll remember in the Old Testament, on the the day of Yom Kippur, that one day the, the, the high priest would dare to enter the inner sanctum of the temple or the tabernacle. And he would enter into the Holy of Holies. On that special day, the high priest would wear a very special ceremonial robe and turban. And part of the garb of the priest was that he had this little pl- pl- placard on his t- turban, which was right on his forehead. And written on that plate was holiness to Yahweh, right on his forehead. And the idea is that that holiness, that his holiness is reflected back to God. And by telling us that his name will be on our foreheads, he is saying, that what is true of that high priest will be true of every one of us, that we will be as priests seeing God face to face and God's glory as reflected back onto us. In the new heavens and the new earth, the future world, there will be no more curse. All that is impure and unholy will have been purged Why won't anything sinful be there? Because it was never permitted in. A few of you mentioned last week that our passage last week ended a little bit early and I left out a part in chapter 21. 21 verse eight says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all the liars, Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. What happens when you look inside your heart and you realize that that verse is talking straight to you? Like, what if I'm the cowardly and the faithless and sexually immoral liar? That's me. Instead of having access to the tree of life, I only have access to that terrible lake. How do people who are afflicted and overridden by the curse go to a place where the curse is reversed, where there is access to the tree of life? Well, 22 tells us, it's later on in chapter 22, verse 14. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And so listen, here's the application for those of us who live a messy, sometimes stumbling spiritual life. Here's the application for the weary, for those who love the picture of the garden restored and the curse reversed but feel so uncertain this vision is given to us so that we will wash and wait wash in the righteousness of Christ wash Say this, say this with all sincerity to God. I have no right to your future world. I renounce all of my so-called righteous deeds. I wouldn't wash in my own righteous deeds. I renounce my thirst For all the false gods in my life that I have used to quench my spiritual thirst, I rest, Lord, alone in the life, death, and resurrection of my Savior, Jesus, the Lamb of God who is at the very center of the new Jerusalem. I plead, Jesus, and nothing more. You wash. And then in verse 17, chapter 22, again, we didn't get to it today, but the response of heaven, what is it? It's this. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It is free. We must come to Jesus and Jesus alone and drink from the water of life. And in fact, We must bathe in it. Christian, bathe, wash in Jesus. And then we don't only wash, but we wait. We wait patiently and with endurance. In verse seven, our last verse in our passage today, Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said, I am coming soon. (laughs) Like, in what sense is Jesus coming soon? Well, the theological answer is that when Jesus died and rose again, as the Apostle Paul says, time has been collapsed. And because there is a definite point when he will come, therefore, in light of that, it is soon. But the Apostle Paul also says this. He says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he goes on to say, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So to die is to be present with the Lord. And so I know, listen to me, I know with all certainty, although I cannot predict the end of human history, I know for sure that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon for everyone in this room. Well, what is your life expectancy? Is it, you got 30 more years in you? You have 50? You got 50 more years? How many years do you have? Some of us, I know, because I've lived just enough life to know that some of us in this room will be surprised by our death, and it will come sooner than we thought. Jesus is coming soon. These words are trustworthy and true. So let us wait patiently and with expectant lives I know that our lives are busy and distracting and I know our, our deep soul disappointment zaps our spiritual energy. And so how do you keep going? Well, remember what we've said. It's easier to press forward in a challenging life when you have a certain confidence that the situation is going to change. And John gives us a vision of a future world where the garden is restored, where the curse is reversed, so that we, so that what we're experiencing right now, however hard it is, however sad it is, however addicting it is, it will not last forever. So, how do you cultivate? this hope, how do, you, how do you nurture this hope in your life right now? Well, I've come to realize and learn that it's a lot like audiation. Remember that word? Hearing the sound without the sound actually being present. You know, we've studied Revelation for almost three months now, and I want you to let these visions become the symbolic reality toward which we live. Remember that with musicians, the brainwaves are as strong as if they're actually sitting in the chair playing the music. And one of the greatest examples of this is the story of Beethoven. When he uh, wrote his ninth symphony, the, the, the final movement in that symphony is Ode to Joy. And you know it, right? Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Worship. Now, when Beethoven composed it, he was almost completely deaf. He'd been losing his hearing for some time. He had essentially lost all of it, finally. And yet, he still composed one of the greatest musical masterpieces of Western history. And many speculate that he had to do it primarily, if not completely, by audition. His ears did not work. He had to call it to mind in order to hear it and then to produce it and then to bring it to life. In the premiere of that symphony, it involved the largest orchestra ever assembled by Beethoven. And he wanted to conduct it himself, but due to his inability to hear, he was not able to do so on his own. And so he was asked to share the stage with someone else. And in fact, many of the singers and the musicians were actually told to ignore him because he could not hear, and yet he still did it. And the spectators tell us that he gave his whole self to this performance, remarking how animated he was throughout the entire performance. Apparently, there were times when he would rise up as if he's coming out of his shoes. and He was so into it that he would fall to the ground Leading the orchestra in this performance, one of the violinists remarks that it looked as if he wanted to sit in every chair and play every instrument because he was lost in enjoyment. And as the performance concluded, they say that it took someone actually walking over to him and pulling his arm to turn him around to see something else that he couldn't hear, which was every single person who was there standing on their feet, giving a thunderous ovation for such beautiful music. And as he stood there, he saw the glory and the goodness of his labor. In the same way, That his labor was not in vain. It is true for you, brothers and sisters. Though you don't always see it or hear it, you'll be grabbed by the arm and turned around to see God's face. So let's audiate heaven now. And as you wash and wait, as you yearn for the consummation of hope, you must immerse yourself in the story, in these visions. It's the tune of hope. And we go into this world deepening our affection for Christ. We develop a redemptive tunnel vision like audiation with this future world in mind we wash and we wait, longing for Christ to come and to make all things new. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come.